0: God, thank you for this word um, from your servant Paul uh, to us, the church, 2,000 years later. Thanks that we can receive it as new news for our hearts today. So would that be true? Would we open, or would your spirit open our hearts, God? Would we be open to revelation, which is also conviction, which is also encouragement, which is also challenge, all those things, God. Bring us into your presence now. And invite us to, uh, to hear from you, God. Might I decrease? Might you increase? And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, um, in on December 20th, of 1999, uh, I was living in Nairobi, Kenya, and I was mugged at knife point. A uh, pretty violent situation. Um, I was getting ready to travel to Tanzania, Arusha Tanzania, with some friends. And so I'd just been to the teller. It's a thing where you get money out. You know, you've seen money. So get a couple hundred bucks to travel. We were going down for New Year's Eve. Uh, it was Y2K, remember that? You know, so we wanted to get as far from the city as we could. So we're going down to Arusha. We knew some folks down there. And um, so we were coming back from the bank, the three of us. My friend Stuart from Scotland, my friend Tom, who's actually part of our church here, and myself. And we're just walking along this road called Casino Road in Nairobi. And just chatting, and I had my money, this uh, passport, not this exact passport, my passport, and a variety of other things. This is a little lesson for you travel. All conveniently located in my little pouch. You've had those pouches before if you've traveled. I had my um, U.S. driver's license. Don't know why I would need that. I wasn't driving at the time. My contact, my address book, all my contacts. This is before smartphones for the United States. My social security card don't know why. I mean, my Visa, my credit cards, all that stuff, right, they're just conveniently located in one, one easy one-stop shop, right? So <laughs> apparently this young man came up to us. Um, this is a road, casino road, where there are a lot of gangs, and so we weren't aware of that at the time. I learned later, but he came up next to us, and um, we were talking, engaged in conversation. I don't even know what about, but uh, I didn't see him behind me, and he pushed my friend Tom out of the way, and then uh, put this knife, it was like a, a large, like a chef's knife or a machete up to my neck and yelled, give me your money. He'd, he'd seen us at the bank. Um, and you know how they say, this is where the story gets interesting, you know how things slow down, like in real, like real time slows down when things like this happen? Well, it did, it slowed down. And I, for a moment, and this isn't, I'm not recommending, recommending this, but um, I, I, I noticed that the knife was large but dull. And that I'm a large guy, and he was a small guy. I was like, this can end differently. So my hand just went up in slow motion and grabbed his forearm, and I spun him around like my best kind of ninja whatever move. I don't know any of that stuff. And, this, and he's waving this, like, machete in my face, um, and we're having this kind of... My friends are not doing anything. My friend Tom is laying on the ground, <laughs> and this guy Stuart from uh, Scotland is just, like, stunned, as he probably should have been, but... A former friend, yeah. So we're, in, we're engaged in hand-to-hand combat. And all, and, and, and guess what happens? My pouch comes out of my shirt, and it's dangling there. And this young man does the smart thing, and he drops his machete and grabs the thing he'd come for. It snaps because it's just connected to my neck by a little purlon cord, and he runs. Now, I decided to chase him, which was the stupidest thing I could have done, and we ran for about a mile. Um, I, learned, I learned later that, you know, I'm not a good runner, and he is. Uh, and the story goes on and on and on. But what, what we were instructed to do, I was living in Kenya at the time. I, I uh, lost my passport. I did actually from him because I was working with guys involved in gangs. I got everything else except for my passport and my cash back. I, I had a really amazing encounter with him and members of his gang, later that week. I, it's, it's a true story, so I, but I'm not going to tell that whole part of the story today. Uh, but what we were told to do by the leader of our group while we were there, I was a volunteer a service year, is to uh, give our passport picture, the photo page of the, of the passport, to the embassy. And so we'd done that because, you know, they want to know you're there. So my friend Joseph, uh, who was in a gang, he told me, he's the one who took me back to visit these guys, said, hey, we should go to the embassy um, near the airport, and I bet you, I bet you're a U.S. citizen, I bet you, you can get a new passport in in time to get down to Tanzania tomorrow. I was like, okay, this is right after the U.S. embassy bombing in Nairobi, so this embassy that's outside the airport, if you've ever been in Nairobi, is like a fortress. It's like, you, you do not go near and so we get there, and they're like dogs. This is before September 11, 2001. Dogs under the car. they are mirrors. They're just making sure we're cool. It's me and Joseph, this Kenyan guy who's got tattoos, and he's, he was in a gang. It's like, oh, great. And this military police guy surround our car. One of them comes to the window, my side, and he says, are you, are you a U.S. citizen? I said, yeah. He said, do you have a passport? I said, no, my passport was just stolen. He said... Uh, drive this way. So he they escorted us, this other side. They escorted, they took me out of the car. I was like, oh great. I don't have a passport. I don't have a driver's license. I got nothing. I have a social security card, I have nothing. And he takes me to this back door, into the embassy, to this room, and I and I kid you not to make a long story a little bit longer. Within an hour, they issued me this diplomatic, this passport, this diplomatic U.S. passport, like it's so janky. Like, the the picture is pasted on. Like, I could have made this myself in my back, you know, my yard. Like, they and it's, and I was in Tanzania that next morning. Um, and what that illustrated to me was the power, the power of citizenship, the power of citizenship. Like, I had, I had not realized what my U.S. citizenship got me in that context, where I was very, very vulnerable. I had nothing. At that moment, no credit card. I couldn't have gotten cash if I wanted to. Um, and citizenship is obviously all over the news right now. Uh, DACA Dreamers. Um, we have people from Haiti and El Salvador, as obviously in the news this week. Are, they came to the United States out of um, situations where there were natural disasters. Are now facing deportation and lots of vulnerability. They're refugees, people who are seeking asylum in our country if they've gotten here, are now facing a lives where um, they're, they're being looked at with increasing suspicion and fear. These are people from Syria and Iraq and Somalia. And, you know, citizenship, if you talk to any of them, is a really powerful thing, especially when you realize you've lost some of it. And so I, I googled the value of citizenship this week, just because I was thinking about a lot of this stuff. And there's this article I found that describes describes the basic rights and responsibilities of citizens. Here's the rights of citizens. The rights you, if you're a U.S. citizen or a citizen of anywhere, well, not anywhere, I should say, let's just say a U.S. citizen for our context. You. These are some of your rights. You have the right to own property, the right to marry anyone you choose without discrimination. You have the freedom of speech, opinion, assembly, no matter your belief. You have You have the uh, right to choose who governs. You have the right to vote. You have the right to a minimum, a minimum, though it's not often what we need, the minimum standard of living. You have the right to gain equal protection under the law, no matter your race, class, gender. Uh, You have the right to a fair trial before an independent court. You have the right to access, the access to basic public services like primary education. These are amazing rights that we have as citizens. Imagine a life without some or all of those rights, what kind of life would that be? I mean, it'd be a really, really anxiety-filled, it'd be a a really hard life. And there are people in our midst right now that are living a life without some of those things. So citizenship is a powerful, powerful thing. Now, what does this have to do with Philippians? (laughs) You're like, great, great speech, Jack. Well, it has everything to do with it. In verse 27 of Philippians 1, I took. I was telling Sean Petrie this morning, we were just talking about, he took a class in Philippians early in the seminary, so did I, you tra- we translated it. And there was this major aha when I did that from the Greek to the English, or from the English to the Greek, I mean. No, no, Greek to English. Uh, in verse 27, we didn't read this, but here's what the English translation of many Bibles says. Whatever happens, this is kind of Paul's summary statement of chapter 1, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. You probably heard that verse before, right? So at a glance, this seems to be about behavior. Be a good example, right? Uh, mind your, kind of P, your theological P's and Q's. Like, attend church, don't cheat on your taxes, give some to the poor, right? That's kind of what we think it means. But there's way, there's way more to it than that. In fact, that's not what it means. Just fl- f- flatly, it has nothing to do with what it means. What it means is actually tied to two significant Greek words that that phrase, live your lives or conduct your lives in a manner worthy of the gospel, is translating. Let me give you those. So the words in a manner worthy is actually one word. It's this word axios. That's where we get words like axiom, axis, which means balance, dependent upon, congruent with. So here's what Paul's saying. Conduct yourself in a manner congruent with, with what? With the gospel. Now hold on. The words conduct yourself are one word also. So here's the word for that. It's the word polito umai, and that's the word where we get the word politics, which is public life, or polis, which is the Greek word for city. So here's what Paul is saying: literally, live your life congruent with your citizenship. And it's by the way, not because he's not talking about citizenship in Philippi, or citizenship uh, as citizenship of Rome, or for our context, citizenship in the United States of America, which we get all of these rights because of. He's saying live as citizens of the kingdom of God, period. That's it. That's Paul's summary statement. It's, it's about more than conduct and more things you shouldn't and shouldn't do. It's all about where I'm from, where I belong, what's my sense of calling, what's my purpose as a result of that, because of my, my true citizenship. Now, why is this significant, okay? There's a contextual reason it's significant, and then there's a real personal reason. We're going to talk about the personal reason, but let me give you the context real quick. Philippi, if you know the context of this place, is a Roman military colony. It's one of the first places, like Richard said in his sermon last week, that was uh, all, the, most, of, if not all, the converts to Christianity there were formerly pagan. They were, they were Roman. They were not Jewish. So they had fierce loyalty to their emperor, Caesar. Fierce loyalty. Uh, and literally viewed him as their, they would call him their lord and their savior. And not only that, these new Christians, uh, from, as, their, as converts from Greco-Roman paganism, uh, had a totally different worldview. So they had a different empire and a different worldview. And you put those two together, in both those senses, their collective and personal identities uh, had been shaped by Roman culture profoundly, as well as this idea of citizenship. In some ways, uh, in a way that like Jewish Christians would have been shaped by their Jewish identity and their citizenship to Jerusalem, okay? And so it's a shaping power that shaped their, their worldview, their customs, their ethics, as well as their relationship to power and politics and all those things, okay? And, and thus Paul is challenging them. He's saying, hey, these new Christians, converts, rethink your citizenship. You need to do that. The gospel is not just a thing you do on Sunday. It's not just a, a good story about a man who lived and died and rose and all that. It's, it's, it's really, it's, it's about who is your functional Lord and Savior, today where you live, how does that impact all, all things? Like, how does it impact your, the way you spend money? How does it impact the way you treat the earth? How does it impact the way you do your work? How does it impact your relationship to your spouse and your children? I mean, it has massive implications, which, which comes to our personal reason for doing this. Citizenship is not just about a passport. Yeah, I got this great diplomatic passport. It's a little souvenir. <laughs> I got a great story that goes with it. But citizenship... In God's kingdom, is not about getting a passport. It's not about a ticket to heaven. Do you hear that? That's not what it's about. It, it, in fact, Paul is challenging us to, to rethink, reorder, restructure the way we think about our whole lives because of this reality that your citizenship in the kingdom is about how you live today, where you live today, who you live with today. Citizenship worthy of the gospel means we need to reconsider, like he was challenging them, our relationship to our stuff our relationship to our power and politics that are governing our lives, our relationship to our sexuality, our relationship to the earth, our relationships to everything, whether that's a friend, a neighbor, spouse, or people in your community that don't look like you, believe like you. We are challenged by this one little verse to rethink it all, okay? And because we don't have time for that, (laughs) I'm just going to invite us to rethink three things. Uh, Or you might say three. There are three distinctives This verse kind of, if you weave it backwards into the passage we did read, three distinctives of citizens of the kingdom of God. And I've outlined them in your bulletin. We'll just kind of go through them, distinctive one, two, and three, okay? So the first distinctive I want to look at with you is it's how we respond to hardships and suffering, okay? Citizens of the kingdom respond to hardships and suffering different than citizens of the world, Okay. And this is really shown to us in verses 12 to 14, also in 19 and 20, where Paul twice in those verses says this little phrase, what has happened? What has happened? Here's verse 12. What has happened has served to advance the gospel. And then in verse 19, what has happened will turn out for my deliverance. That's what's happened. <laughs> you need to know. Paul, in both cases, is pointing to this, this reality that he's deep in trouble, deep in trouble. He is like, not just in the principal's office today. He's facing a trial, okay? He's in chains. Literally, he's chained. Uh, there's a debate around this, but he's probably chained to a member of the Praetorian Guard, who are Caesar's elite prison or bodyguards. Like, these are the guys that, you know, in the movies, wear that helmet with the red thing. You know what I'm talking about? These are those guys. And he's chained to one of them. They would work in shifts. they come in for a certain shift, but he's always chained 24-7. 365, chained to another human being, okay? So he, he's not just in prison. He's, he's chained in prison. He couldn't go to the bathroom in privacy. Couldn't eat his meals in privacy. Couldn't sleep in privacy. If it was us today, couldn't check his Facebook or Instagram in privacy. Always has somebody looking over his shoulder. You know, talk about big brother. And it's in that context, Paul says in verse 19, what has happened will turn out for my deliverance. I mean, how is this humiliating Imprisonment, all of your freedoms ripped away from you, going to turn out for your deliverance. Paul, are you out to lunch? You've lost it. It doesn't make sense. Well, if you know that, literally, I, found, I discovered this this week. Paul is quoting that phrase, what, was, what has happened? Will turn out for my deliverance? He's quoting Job. It's actually from Job 13, 16. I, I found this. It's amazing. It's, this, it's one of uh, Job's most poignant speeches where uh, he's, he's repudiating the perspectives of his friends. Remember these friends who are trying to tell him, like, well, you know, you must have done something wrong because aren't, like, you go to church and, and this shouldn't happen to churchgoers. You've, you've done, you've sinned. Or, or God must be using you as like a pawn in God's game. God's not good. And Job, <laughs> he, he knows better than to fall prey to that. They're sermonizing. And here's what he says. Starting in Job 13, 13, he says, keep silent, shut up. <laughs> I love that. And let me talk. Hear what I have to say. And then he goes on, he says, why, why do I put myself in jeopardy? Why don't I take my own life? And then he says this in verse 15, I love this. Though God slays me, like he's being slayed, I will hope in him. Though God slays me, I will hope in him. I will surely defend my way to his face. Indeed, this will turn out for my deliverance, for no godless person would dare come before him. And here's what this means. See, Paul's kind of channeling his inner Job, and and, and that's significant because Paul is not only in a very demeaning, demoralizing place, but really he's facing execution. He's going to be executed. And yet, like Job before him, he says, listen, listen, okay? Listen, people. What's happened, it's going to work out. It's going to work out. Not it might work out. It's going to work out. Though he slays me, I will put my hope in God. See, so he's not discouraged. He's not despair. Instead, he possesses audacious, he says this, I have an audacious confidence in the, fa- in the face of a trial. He has an, this uncommon resiliency, which I think is important for us because it reveals in the first sense where Paul gets his confidence from. Where does Paul get that kind of confidence from? You see, just as with Job, it's not that Paul thinks that somehow this is, like God brought this on him, and so God's trying to teach him a lesson, you know, like, here, I'm gonna teach you a lesson about fire. Touch the fire. Yeah, you burn. No, he's not doing that. It's 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 not that God thinks Job deserves this. You know, it's gonna teach you a little bit something about sin, a lesson about sin, you know. Uh, instead, Paul is declaring, like Job before him, listen to this, that God does not cease to be God in the midst of suffering and hardship. He has not confused his circumstances with God's character. We we this is so important. He doesn't confuse a challenging situation in his life with the character of God. And the character of God, listen to this, is always, always, always good. Paul knows that. He, no matter the circumstance, God is good. And because of that, he's clear on God's intention for his life, which is goodness. As Richard said last week, that God will, can and will use everything, anything in our lives. doesn't matter the situation. Both the blessings and the hardships to complete us, renew us, Bring us towards salvation if we'll just let him, and have eyes to see it. Okay, God. Paul does not confuse the circumstance with God's character and intention, and thus he says, "It's my in verse twenty, it's my eager expectation <laughs> to see God do this. I'm so excited to see this happen. I don't know how it's going to happen, but I don't. I, I'm so excited. Which is not, by the way, wishful thinking. Like he's not just whistling in the dark. Just Wow, I just hope it happens. Like, you know, just kind of blind to this thing. In fact, he's, it, that presumes like a, such a confidence about the future. Paul knows that his imprisonment, he knows somehow, his imprisonment is going to lead to his salvation. He, he doesn't know how, but he knows it's going to happen because it's in line with the character of God. And he believes in God. But there's something else Paul, pray, Paul says, and this is really important for us. Another vehicle to which he's been given this sort of confidence and assurance that I think some of us, May never have thought about I know I hadn't. So verse 19, Paul says this, that it's actually a combination of their prayers and God's provision of the Holy Spirit that he'll be delivered. Listen to this in verse 19 of Philippians 2. He says, uh, exactly that. Go figure. <laughs> I know that it's through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ that what's happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. Isn't that amazing that my notes say the same thing? Okay, so what's that about? <laughs> Well, the, one of the commentators named Gordon Fee on, on Philippians, he says that the grammar here and that, that phrase assumes this clo- the closest kind of possible relationship, like, uh, like if you're twins. We have a, few, a couple twins here. If you're the closest kind of pos- possible physical relationship between their prayers and God's Spirit in accomplishing God's mission. And it, thus it gives it kind of a, A window into Paul's spiritual life. A little window. And here's that window. Because it's here and it's elsewhere in Paul's letters. Paul does not think of the Christian life, never did, as something you can do in isolation. Whenever he's talking about you, for example, in any of his letters, it's always plural. It's always y'all. The Texans got it right. Y'all, and then he says something. So he's saying that you are inextricably bound together with others. You cannot separate yourself from others and call yourself a follower of Christ. There are no, there's no, like, individual Christians, he's saying. And therefore, he assumes that praying alongside the work of God's Spirit will be the means by which God delivers Paul and ultimately brings glory to himself. That's just the way Paul thinks. That's his economy. Uh, Eugene Peterson, who's the translator of the message that I often will read from the stage here, he, in one place in this book called The Contemplative Pastor, points out how this idea of the boundedness between God and God's people in carrying out God's mission is actually illustrated best by something in the Greek language called the middle voice. And I told somebody I'm going to talk about the middle voice this morning. Here's your little middle voice. Um, so he said, here's what Peterson says. as He's reflecting back on a Greek course that he actually took at Seattle Pacific. He was an undergrad there. And uh, and here's what he said, he said, for four years, minus vacations, I made a daily descent into the basement room in Macmillan Hall, some of you went to SPU, at the foot of Queen Anne. Light came uncertain, this must have been winter, light came uncertainly through the Venetian blinds from shallow windows high in the walls, not a day like today at all. This is amazing. And I was learning Greek, and I puzzled over many strange things in those years under the soft-spoken patience of my professor, Dr. Winifred Weeder. I puzzled longest over the middle voice. And here's what he says. My grammar book said that the middle voice is the use of the verb which describes the subjects as participating in the results of the actions. Okay? Just because that was a lot of words, here's here's what he says. Active and passive voices I understood, but middle voice is this new kid on the block. When I speak in the active voice, I initiate the action. I counsel my friend. Okay? When I speak in the passive voice, I receive the action. That another initiates. I am counseled by my friend. When I speak in the middle voice, (laughs) I actively participate in the results of an action that another initiates. hear that? When I speak in the middle voice, I actively participate in the results of an action that another participates. So I read that now, and it reads like the description of Christian prayer. The subject is participating in the results of the action. I don't control the action. That's pagan prayer. And that's what Paul's trying to break these people out of, putting the gods to work by an incantation or a ritual. I'm not controlled by the action. That's a Hindu concept of prayer, where I slump passively into an impersonal and fated will of the gods or the goddesses. Okay? Instead, in Christian prayer, and this is what Paul is saying, I enter into the action begun by another, by my creating and saving Lord, and find myself participating in the results of that action. I neither do it nor have it done to me. I Participate in what is willed. I participate in what is willed. (laughs) And that's amazing to me that Paul is saying, uh, "I, I continue to rejoice because I know that through your prayers, I'm participating in what's willed. And the provision of God's Spirit, what has happened to me, will turn out. I'm participating in my deliverance. You hear that? It's willed. I'm confident of that. It's going to happen. I just don't know how. It's middle voice. Prayer at its best is middle voice. It's a partnership between our minds, our hearts, the Spirit of God in this like really subtle and sublime relationship where by together we accomplish God's work. And that's, that's amazing when you think about prayer. I don't know what you think about prayer. I often think about it as this thing I'm, I'm just fighting through this thick, dense fog to either hear God's voice or get God to hear me. And ask God for something. But God is saying, no, no, no. You're participating in a reality. You're participating in what I intend. Just join me. <laughs> You're free. You, you get to join me in this conversation. Um, I'm reminded of a powerful illustration of this. Because it is Dr. King's birthday tomorrow. Uh, where he tells the story of this woman named Mother Pollard. Who's heard of Mother Pollard? Maybe a couple of you. This is in this, this book called Strength to Love. This is my favorite Martin Luther King book. But... Um, I'll, t- I'll, just tell- I'll just read this story for you. It's a beautiful little story. He says One of the most dedicated participants in the bus protest in Montgomery, Alabama, was this elderly African American woman whom we affectionately called Mother Pollard. And although she was poverty stricken and uneducated, she was amazingly intelligent and possessed a deep understanding of the meaning of the movement. After having walked for several weeks, she was asked if she was tired. And with this ungrammatical profundity, she answered, My feet's tired but my soul's rested. On a particular Monday evening that he's talking about, following a tension-packed week, which included being arrested, receiving numerous threatening telephone calls, uh, I spoke at a mass meeting. I attempted to convey an overt impression of strength and courage, although I was inwardly depressed and full of fear. At the end of the meeting, Mother Pollard came to the front of the church and said, Come here, son. I immediately went to her and hugged her affectionately, and then she said, Something's wrong with you. You didn't talk strong tonight, Martin. Speaking further to disguise my fears, I retorted, Oh no, Mother Pollard, nothing's wrong. I'm feeling fine. But her insight was discerning. Now you can't fool me, son. I know something's wrong. Is it that we ain't doing things to please you? Or is it that the white folks are bothering you? Before I could respond, she looked directly into my eyes and said this. Listen to this, friends. I, Don, told you that we is with you all the way. Then her face became radiant, and she said these words with quite certainty, but even if we ain't with you, God's going to take care of you. Even if we ain't with you, God is going to take care of you. And as she spoke these words, everything in me quivered, everything quickened, and I was filled with raw energy. And since that day, she passed away. I've been (laughs) arrested. My house has been bombed. I mean, just go on and on with his life. But as the years have unfolded, those words have come back to me again and again to give light, peace, and guidance to my troubled soul. God is going to take care of you. Mother Pollard understood the middle voice. Like she she got it. <laughs> like that we are, partici- we are with you all the way. And if we ain't with you, God's going to take care of you. Because it's in God's character to do so. She understood that in the midst of suffering and hardship, we're not alone, never alone. And God does not cease to be God. Do you understand that? Like in the midst of a hard week, how well do we understand that we need help and that we, surrounding us this morning, like look around you for a moment, you are surrounded by help. You may have come alone, but you are not alone. God has given us help. So are you in prison? Are you facing a great loss? Are you facing a big decision, a crisis, something way more difficult than you anticipated, caring for aging parents, raising kids, the issues in our city, in our country, in our world? Like, it just goes on and on. It all seems way too big, right, for anybody. Well, guess what? God has given us help. (laughs) It helps right here. We're not autonomous, self-sufficient, infallible beings who can get by with the help of Alexa or Siri. Like, that's not the way we've been designed. We are fallible creaturely, weak, needy people. And in the midst of our neediness and our weakness, God says, the beauty of the gospel is that God says, help, I've got help for you. My spirit with my people delivering you from that hardship. We's with you all the way. And if we ain't with you, God's gonna take care of you. That's the gospel. And that's how citizens of the kingdom face hardship and face suffering. We do it together with that kind of confidence. Here's the second distinctive, okay? It's how we engage in conflict. And these last two, I'll go a little quicker through. So in uh, verses 15 to 18 of chapter one again, here's what Paul says. There's some that preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, like selfish ambitions, not sincerely, but just thinking they can make things harder for me. And then there's others that don't. And then Paul ends that section in verse 18 says does it doesn't matter. Like what does it matter? <laughs> the number one thing I care about is Christ being preached. And because of that, I rejoice. So this paragraph's a little bit of a detour in the, in the whole thing, but it's important because, see, Paul's joy, as we discover, is, is he's disappointed even though he's confident. He's, he's discouraged even though he knows that he's going to be delivered. And the reason he's discouraged is there's people outside of the prison walls who are, who are spreading the gospel with ulterior motives. Uh, and those motives include envy and resentment toward Paul. Like, they're just trying to, to take him down a notch while he's locked up. Maybe, maybe they can be the ones who gather everybody. Maybe they can be the ones that plant the churches. Um, and Paul doesn't actually name who they are. He just names their motive, who they are. Like, we love to point fingers at those other people, right? Paul says that's not important. Here's the important thing. He, he, he says the most important thing is that you take a different approach to conflict. What does it matter? That's the most important thing. Doesn't matter who they are, doesn't really even matter what they're doing. What does it matter? That the gospel is preached. And I'll just say it's one thing to, like to see the positive side of a difficult circumstance, to have confidence in the midst of real challenges. It's another when you, you know, when somebody, if you're in a position, attacks your integrity or like tries to rip your life's work, undermines your life's work, you know. I don't know if anybody has ever had your integrity questioned, like in in business, had your character assailed. Uh, You've faced criticism for something you've said or done. I know I have. Uh, Gossip, falsehood, all that stuff. There's probably nothing worse than that. When you know something's not true and yet you're facing the lies. And given that, don't think for a moment Paul didn't struggle with, like, anger, resentment, like he talks about it in other letters. He gets pretty mad about this. But his conclusion here in Philippians, really important, because he's dealt with the question of who he is, who he belongs to. The solution that he has for how we respond to conflict is the proclamation of the gospel. That's the most important thing. It doesn't matter who's attacking you. It's about Jesus, people hearing about Jesus. Paul rejoices that Christ is being preached, talked about, presented no matter what, where, how, or by who. It doesn't matter the circumstances. He does not care. It's about Christ. Christ is number 1 in his life. He's so convinced of the efficacy of Jesus. Like how convinced are we of the efficacy, that's a fancy word, but of the like the power of Jesus to change people's lives. Not our words, Jesus. Not our convincing like charisma, but Jesus. Like, I was just talking to Sean this morning about Connie, the founder of Teleos, and it's all about friendship with somebody. You may never say anything about Jesus. That's going to... Uh, Jesus is present in you. He uses the least likely people, events, to achieve his purpose. He's convinced that Jesus is able to break through everything, dark circumstances, um, and, and over the long haul. That, that the truth of Jesus, because Jesus is truth, will break through everything. He's the, the center of truth is Christ. Do we believe that Jesus is truth? And, and, and how convinced of the truth of Jesus are you? Like, which, by the way, is not a question of whether you think the gospel is accurate or correct. We could talk about that, but the truth of Christ, it's not a set of doctrines or dogma. That's all good. But the truth of Jesus is really all about trust. It's about trust. Do you trust Jesus? That's the question. Uh, the, the 20th century missiologist, Leslie Newbegin, you, you know that where Jesus says in John 14, I'm the way, the truth, and the life? He has a little comment on that phrase. He says, it's not that Jesus teaches the way or guides the way. If, if that were so, we could just think of him and thank him, thank him for his teaching and go on our own way. You know, like, thanks, Jesus, for those words. I'm going over here. Uh, he himself is the way, and therefore it's not only being made part of his humanity that we're on the way, but we begin to trust in him. Like all human beings, like the whole family, we're one company of travelers together, and we need to become totally identified with Jesus. The truth of Jesus is about trusting in Jesus. Do you trust your life to Jesus? That's what Paul's asking. In the midst of your chaos, personally, our chaos collectively. I mean, this has huge implications for us as a church, as a, as a city. Like as we, as we think about present challenges, we have to remember if we trust in Jesus, that if he is the truth, these things, that, pr- that Christ promises to sustain all things. That's Hebrews 1.3. That he is before all things, holds all things together, Colossians 1.17. And that in all things, he will continue to work for good. God's character is good. Jesus will work for good, Romans 8.28. In all things, we need to let the truth of Christ's allness guide our thinking, dispel our worry, all those things. That, that's the, what this paragraph Paul is, this little aside, he's showing us that he can submit his life, his personal interests, his, his career to the, the pain, rejection of all that to Christ, the truth of Christ, the allness of Christ. All things are going to work out because of Christ. And it's that sort of seeing that is distinct of citizens of the kingdom. Citizens, we respond to hardship with confidence and then we, we also, we respond to conflict with this sense that of trust. God, I trust you with what's going on out there because I know, I know that you're in this. You've presented yourself available to us. You're with us. You're for us, okay? So do you trust Jesus? That's the question. Here's the final thing. And it has to do with our view of life and death. And... Um, and Paul says this, we ended on this phrase, verse 21, which I think is, other than verse 27, which I talked about at the beginning, kind of the crux of this whole thing. So I'll just read verse 21. He says, for, to me, for, to me to live, this is weird English, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain, okay? It's kind of a jumbled phrase that I just want to unpack. Uh, but it, I, I looked at that earlier this week and I kind of had this question, so I'm going to just give you this question. Like, how is, does death mean this, as much as life? Like, are, they, are these interchangeable ideas, death and life? And most of us would probably say, no. Like, I don't want to die. This life I'm living, my family, my friends, this city, this, this amazing world, is. I don't want to lose it. I don't want to die. I'm not sure what's on the other side of this life. Death can't be the same as life. And yet Paul says, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Are death and life interchangeable ideas? And the answer is yes. And the reason for that answer is something I kind of discovered this week as I thought about this. The decisive commentary on that question and that phrase is actually a few pages earlier in Paul's letters. If you flip back a few pages to Galatians... um, Galatians chapter 2, at the very, very end of the chapter, listen to what Paul says, verse, verse 19. Through the, though through the law I died to the law so that I might live for God, here's verse 20, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, his physical body, your physical body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I no longer live, but Christ lives. That's the that's the crux of this. Here's what Paul is saying: the concept of life in verse 21 of Philippians 1. It doesn't mean his mortal life. He's not talking about Paul anymore. The life of the body, the life of this man who lived one day and then he died. Instead, he's talking about this life that has been check. His life's been checkmated. Though he's still on the board, he's still alive by another life. And that life is the life of Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives. And, and when you realize that, when Paul says to live is Christ and to die is gain, here's what he's saying. My, my present life, not my life in this body, but my, my life in Christ is what I'm focused on. And thus, as I live, my life has been arrested, confiscated, and he lives in place of me. It's not me. It's not me. I'm not. I'm Christ. You're Christ. You're Christ. A bunch of Christ's in this room. That's the reality of what Paul's saying. <laughs> and that's a mind-blower for me. Christ is living vicariously, expressing himself through all of us. Dying as gain is nothing less than this idea of union that we often talk about with Christ. Perfect union. So to gain Christ, be found in Christ, as he's going to later say in Philippians 3, Philippians 3, doesn't mean to be together with Christ in some eternal heavenly bliss. You know, like as if there's going to be a Christ there and then like a bunch of us there together but separate. Paul's saying dying as gain means life fully in Christ, complete union with Christ. There is no more me. Only Christ. Now here's what this idea of union, I mean, that's a mind blower. Just put that in your pipe and smoke it. No. That's a terrible phrase to offer at the end of a sermon. Uh, But this idea of being united with Christ, it changes kind of everything. Christ isn't just in me. He is expressing himself to you as me. Uh, You get to meet Christ in each other and have your life changed by Christ. And here's how this idea of union ties back to the idea of citizenship. Sometime last year, I picked up this little book called Union with Christ by this pastor down in um, Los Angeles named Rankin Wilborn. And uh, he says, the problem with defining union with Christ as you are in Christ, Christ is in you, is that it makes union with Christ sound as though it's all about you. (laughs) But the fact is that one of the most rewarding aspects of union with Christ is that it reminds you it's not about you. It's not about you or you or you. To be in Christ is by definition to be part of something much bigger, more comprehensive, and more wonderful than you. One of the very dangers of union with Christ that is meant to protect us from is this radical individualism that we see all over the place today. And individualism is so prevalent in our culture, in our churches, and God is trying to break that down with this idea of union. Union with Christ means you're part of something bigger than merely you you're part of a larger family you're part of a broader mission you're part of a longer story you're part of a bigger world you're part of a deeper love when we're united with Christ when we grasp our union to Christ we begin to realize that we are connected to the whole body of Christ we are connected to the whole story of Christ we are inextricably connected to the whole the radical love of Christ we are in Christ each one of us, united with him in his desire to redeem the world. So union, as it relates to our citizenship, is about recognizing that not, not only who our Lord is, like we give our lives to Christ, but it's also about understanding where we belong. We belong here. You belong here. If you came here feeling like you're not sure if you belong here, you're not sure if you buy this story, or you've maybe done some things, or you're, you have know, people knew your whole story, maybe they would kind of reject you. God is saying, no, no, you belong here. You're part of a family. You're part of a story. You're part of a mission. You're part of a world and part of a love. Union's about this increase, expansion, and thickening of our citizenship. We are citizens of the kingdom of God. Um, Some years ago, like, I'll tell you one more story. There's this guy named Toyohiko Kagawa. He's a Japanese Christian pacifist. Went to the same seminary I went to, but back in World War II. And uh, he, lived in this, he lived in the, the slums of, he chose to live in the slums of Kobe in Japan, and he established schools and hospitals and churches, and he was nominated twice for the Nobel Peace Prize. Um, and he was also imprisoned by the Japanese government for spreading his ideas and tortured. And in one of his books I discovered once, he talks about his imprisonment, and uh, how when he was in prison, his cell, I'm not even sure how much, six feet by six feet, it's like this little square was six feet by six feet. He was in prison for years, years and years and years. And so while he was in prison, though he was confined, he found it to be quite comfortable, he writes. And so he'd literally walk um, two miles a day in his prison cell, six feet by six feet by six feet, 5,000 steps a day. And what he'd do while he did that is he'd imagine he lived in a mansion two miles wide two miles deep, <laughs> a palatial estate. And then he'd meditate on Paul's words in Philippians 4, which we'll get to in a couple of weeks. I've learned to be content. Whatever the circumstance in my life, I know now how to live when things are difficult. I know now how to live when things are prosperous. I have learned the secret of facing poverty And the secret of facing wealth and the secret of facing hunger and satisfaction and sickness and wholeness and prison and freedom. Listen to this. I am ready for anything because of the strength of the one who lives where? Within me. Now, you're not, maybe you're in prison right now. You're just feeling like you're in prison. The invitation, I think, for us is to take those steps. Step by step by step, thousands upon thousands of steps we get to take today, not imprisoned, but free, free citizens of the kingdom of God. God is calling us to act out the vision that Kagawa captured, like we have been given this place, these people, this world to live in and as Christ. Live out your citizenship as members of God's kingdom, friends. I'm going to invite the worship team up. And uh, as we respond, I want to invite us to just take a moment to, to pray um, over this declaration on our lives. God, thank you for this word um, that Paul speaks over our lives, this invitation to live as we are, as who we are, and where we live, as where we live, as citizens of your kingdom, which is here on earth, just as in heaven. You've made it possible through Christ. We ask that you'd now give us that vision to see the world around us as you see it, to begin to see ourselves as you see us, as uniquely loved, uniquely created, as people in whom you uniquely live your life. Thank you, Jesus, that you do that, that you desire union with us, but that you, in each of us, in varying degrees, you live, not us, you live. And thank you that as we walk out of here, God, we can walk with the confidence that even Paul had, no matter what we face. We can face it because you with us. You are in us. You live as us. God, for my friends that might be facing something that feels overwhelming, would you conquer that today, God? Would you conquer the spirit of fear? Would you conquer the spirit of discouragement and despair? God, would you conquer it because you are good, and we know you desire goodness for our lives. So we sing into that goodness now, God, as we respond, and we thank you that you'll lead us in response in the coming days as well. Pray in Christ's name. Amen.